everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we have a proper legend on the show. It is Tommy Stinson. I think everybody knows Tommy's story, but at the age of 14, he joins his brother Bob as a member of the replacements playing bass. And he sticks it out with them as long as that band survived. You know, they didn't last as long as I think a lot of us would have liked, but they made it work there for a while. Eventually they break up or implode. And Paul goes solo. And uh, Tommy puts out some solo albums, which are fantastic. And he also puts out, he starts a kind of a new project called Bash and Pop. Now, we didn't talk as much about Bash and, Prop, Bash and Pop, although we do talk a lot about his solo material. So I wanted to play a song of theirs that I love, Never Aim to Please, to kind of kick this thing off. Eventually, he joins Axl Rose, of all people, in, new, in uh, Guns N' Roses, and he's on the Chinese Democracy album. So we talk a lot about that in here, too. Well, his latest project is a collaboration with guitarist Chip Roberts, and they call themselves Cowboys in the Campfire. And this, this, the album is called Wronger, and it's really chill and warm. It sounds like what we talked about in here. I mentioned to him that it sa- a review called it like a couple of friends sitting around the campfire just playing songs with each other. And that's exactly what it sounds like. I love it. And so it's, uh, it's different, though, than what you would expect maybe from Tommy. So we get into that, too. Now, I'll tell you, Tommy, understandably, is not interested in being the sole spokesman for the replacements. So, yes, we talk about the replacements. We don't spend all our time there. And, as you can also imagine, being the spokesman for Guns N' Roses and Axel, he doesn't want to do that too much either. And I don't blame him. So we get into both of those things, but it's not the, it's not the whole focus of this conversation. If you're wishing we could have gotten more, I hear you. But at the end of the day, Tommy's here to talk about his stuff, and I respect that. Anyway, he was great, and he called me from his home in upstate New York. Okay, so first of all, I wanted to mention, I was reading about in Forbes, your kind of current approach to touring. I know you just got off a tour, quote unquote, and are about, I think, to head out on another one. But this touring that you're doing is like mostly playing in people's backyards and stuff like this. What what brought this on? Um, well, a lot of the, the reason why I'm playing, some of them are backyards, some of them are breweries, some are just kind of more pop-up venues, if you will. Kind of the way I, I, I roll is that I, I kind of pick and choose when I want to go tour and play shows and stuff. And the way I'm doing it right now allows me to not have to sit here and think about what I want to do a year from now. It's like, so, so, you know, we got a record out with, you know, and it was coming out in June 2nd and was like, well, let's go play some shows behind that. Call up agent. Hey, can you book me some shows in like two months? I want to start kind of tour behind this record and do this, you know, mm-hmm. um, this way. And I'm not real particular about how I do it, except that I don't want it to be a beating. Um, I've toured so many ways and the bigger the band, the more hellacious the fucking beating. And so, (laughs) um, and, and I'll leave that at that really, but it really comes down to, I, I I don't think that far ahead. I I don't know what the hell I want to do six months from now, let alone a year from now to book, you know, a proper tour. So this works for me. I can tour my own, on my own volition and, and, you know, do seven, 10, 14 days, you know, when I want to, and, and it works out, you know, also with COVID and stuff like that, a lot of the smaller venues that I would probably play in this sort of a arrangement have either shuttered or, you know, they don't want to, you know, they don't have the money to pay me to, to play a proper gig. So this niche kind of way we're doing things, it, it pays way better for me to be able to do it on my own terms and not kill myself at it. Yeah. So I get the best of both worlds. I'm playing to my, you know, people that are fans anyway. I'm not out there trying to like reinvent the fucking wheel. Right. But I can, like I said, I can do it on my own terms and do what I need and play my songs and, you know, have fun with it. That's so cool. A few years ago. So Steve Kilby of the church has been on here and um, he came through Denver doing a very similar tour as yours. In fact, uh, you're here in a couple of weeks at a place called Brews Beers, and I think he may have even played that same place. I went. We have the same just, agent. You <laughs> do? Okay, well then that's what, that's the deal. So yeah, he uh, he came through town with Amanda Palmer as yep. the 
uh, on the keyboards and I went and I even paid the hundred bucks to like get the VIP treatment. And I was the only one who did. So I stay, I sat backstage with both of them for like an hour before the show, just shooting the breeze. He's, he's kind of, I love him, but he's kind of prickly. And so he sort of would leave for long stretches and left me to talk to Amanda, which was great because she was wonderful. And then the two of them just put on this really great show to a small, I, I don't know, there were probably 70 of us maybe in this place where you're going. And he was telling me that how much more money he makes on that tour, because it's just him and Amanda driving around in a car with their stuff in the trunk. And uh, he sells his artwork at these things and he can, you know, his own merch and everything. It was genius. And you're doing something similar. Same model. Um, And it works for, for people like us. And I can't remember if, if, if Amanda has kids or not. I know she lives up near me, actually, I think. Um, Wait, where uh, are you? Hudson, New York. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. Upstate, upstate, yep. about two hours north of Manhattan. I heard that her and her, I guess, ex-husband lived up here in the okay. area. But I love Amanda. Um, yeah. Great stuff. And I, I love Steve stuff too, but uh, it's the yeah. same model and it does work better because one, you can just do it very, you don't have to fucking get a whole band together, traveled, all this. It just, it makes it much simpler to just kind of to do things and um, get your music to the people that really want to hear it. The the idea at my age and, and all the shit I've done right now to go out there and pretend like I'm going to try and become like a pop star. Uh, I don't give a fuck. I, I really don't. I just, it's more like, I just want to play my songs, have fun sure. with it and, you know, pay my bills. And that this, yeah. this allows me to do that and have a good time at it without killing myself. So they, every people are starting to get hip to it. And by, by, you know, by a lot of the smaller clubs, you know, shuttering and different things like this too. The ones that are still open, they do pretend to book, you know, a long time in advance. So mm-hmm. this works for a lot of us artists who yeah. just you know, can't, who have kids or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Just yeah. kind of got on a moment's notice. It's great. I, uh, I'm so bummed. I, the night you're here, <laughs> it, it, talk about, it couldn't be more opposite. I am going to see Brian Adams on the night you're here because yeah. there was recent, I love Brian. I mean, nothing. I, lo- I love him. Sure. And there was live nation was having this big sale of like 25 bucks all in. And I, I've seen him a few times and I thought, I don't need to see him again, but for 25 bucks, I mean, that's so cheap. Sure. I'll go. And it's the and same night as your show. Shit. And does that I mean Joan Jets and Joan Jets opening up too? Yes, right? that's right. Yes, that's Joan's the same the night opener. that I'm playing. Yes. Shit. That's unfortunate. <laughs> well, oh, that sucks I now. That. I, I know. <laughs> you could have been my plus one. One thing that I think is kind of uh fortuitous is that your recent album lends itself really well to the kind of environment that you're talking about where you play shows. I, in fact, the term that I keep coming up with is sort of lovingly unfussed because it doesn't sound tossed off or unthought through, but it feels like you put a lot of love into it and it's meant to sound relaxed, enjoyable, kind of chilled, you know? In fact, I was reading the review on all music and Stephen Thomas Erlewine said the best thing. He said, Stinson's rumpled charm and casual touch make wronger sound tossed off in the best sense. It's light and intimate. The kind of record two old friends make when they just want to relax and enjoy each other's company. That's exactly what this album sounds like to me. So tell me who Chip Roberts is. I don't know enough about him. So Chip Roberts was sort of like the local guitar slinger in the eighties and nineties in Philly. Okay. Um, he, we were, you know, we probably almost crossed paths in the 80s. He's a little bit older than I, but, you know, when the replacements came through Philadelphia the first time, he was playing the club across the town, you know. Mm. Um, only difference was we were playing more of the rock club, and Chip kind of came back. He was kind of a fill-in guitar player for a lot of country and Americana acts coming through Philly that needed a guitar slinger, and they'd, mm. they'd call him up. Played with all kinds of people. You know, he's in the George Thorogood camp. Uh, the camp of people. Um, okay. You know, all those folks. And uh, just kind of been around for a while. So when we met, so he's the uncle of my ex, my second ex-wife. Mm-hmm. We met and we just kind of became fast friends. Mm-hmm. And so we've been writing since. And, you know, we toured, we toured 
you know, just as Tommy Simpson solo and him playing with me on a bunch of stuff of mine, but also stuff we'd written together that ended up being on the Bash and Pop record or even the One Man Mutiny record that I made. So, you know, after a while of that, he was, we were just kind of goofing around. He came up with Cowboys in the Campfire as a, as a name for us. And that stuck. We thought it, it, we thought it made sense. And, it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we followed through with that. And here we are. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about some of the songs in particular on the album. I love Out of the Gate, Here We Go. I believe that's you on a ukulele and then yep. there's horns which is and this song is one of the only times on the album where the production even gets remotely big not that yeah. it's it's comparatively a big song to the rest but i love horns and i feel like we don't hear horns enough tell me about the creation of that whose idea was horns you know we had this riff that would that goes through the song and i thought it would make a good horn arrangement a good a good fun thing i mean i'm playing a ukulele i was just thinking in terms of what does this song want you know it seems to want some other uh you know some other sound happening i didn't couldn't figure it out and then i thought horns and i got a hold of my buddy joe kid who was in the mighty mighty boss tones and thought let's get these guys to play that melody and come up see what they can do sent them the track they came up with horn parts and there you have it it stuck I love it. It's such a great opener too. And the ukulele is a nice touch. I want to ask you about some of the lyrics on the album because I'm not always a lyric person, but sometimes when they jump out at me, they really jump. On Karma's Bitch, you say, how does it feel to be the man who dumped his girlfriend for the daughter that drank herself to death? Wow, that's heavy. And I wondered if that's a firsthand experience. Uh, loosely based on a story that Chip told me about a neighbor of his down in Maryland. Oh. Um, apparently a true story. Guy was dating a woman um, who they were just terrible, terrible alcoholics. And then he dumped her, started dating the girl's, the woman's daughter. And that daughter ended up dying from it, dying oh. of alcoholism. Oh. Yellowed up, yellowed up, just fucking just drank herself to death. And so he told me the story because we were in a golfing cart, cruising around the neighborhood. He was See that guy right there? He told me that whole story, and I'm like, "That's terrible." And then we wrote the song the next day. So, what? Uh, oh yeah. my gosh, I love it! I love it. 
I love Mr. Wrong too. I hope you're Mr. Next. Mr. Next is Mr. Right. That is something that I think a lot of us would love to say to someone who dumped us or broke our hearts or we broke up with or whatever. What's the yeah. story of Mr. Right? You know, or Mr. Just, Wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, some days I don't know which 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 it's going to go either. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's it's sort of you know about summing it up, summing up a, a relationship that's not happening. And yeah. I, I I found myself you know having friendships with exes for the, you know, that I've, I've seemed to be friends with most of my, a good portion of my exes. And a lot of that is because I wasn't the right guy or they weren't the right for me, whatever. But there's a reason why you hang out with someone like that and put time in. And, you know, oftentimes it doesn't reveal itself until it's too late. And that's can be a good thing or a bad thing, but that's kind of what the song's all about, you know? Yeah. I love the way you sing fight, fight, that uh, extra emphasis. That's one of my favorite moments. I always refer to them as pixie dust. There's yeah. these moments in songs where someone just sprinkles a little pixie dust on a song and elevates it, makes it sort of special. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, too, is in Fall Apart Together, It's that's practically a country song. And there's always been, there were some country-ish elements in the replacements, songs like maybe Androgynous or something. And then there's an Americana kind of vibe to a lot of your solo stuff, but it's pretty much, pretty much straightforward rock. Other than this album, this album just goes deep into country. Old, classic, wonderful country. Uh, what kind of country music is influencing you and why did you think, now's the time for me to go whole hog on the country influence? Well... Neither, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, good. Yeah. Um, realistically, I mean, I've always grown up with a wide variety of music in my repertoire. Um, you know, from an early age, I mean, Peter Jasperson was my musical guru. And it was most, uh, you know, he didn't so much feed my punk rock tendencies as much as he turned me on to great songwriters and great music. And so I've grown up with everything from, you know, the Beatles or from from Bob Dylan to Captain Beefheart, I mean, and everything in between and around. Um, so, and, and that ref- that's reflected really in the replacements as well. Like we kind of grew up, 
you know, playing sort of a hopped up version of, you know, um, song, songwriter, singer, songwriter songs, really. Yep. You know, not so much Americana, not so much country, although we had some of that in there. But I didn't really intend to go full hog country on this record either. It's just that it's kind of a bit of Chip's influence on my writing, I suppose. But um, but also just kind of our what we kind of sound like together is kind of what that is. And yeah, there's not wasn't really a country intent. It just kind of turned out this way. And and that's just kind of the uh, the the, na- the nature of the songs, kind of you know dictating what they should what they want to sound like and what they yeah. want to. That's interesting you say that, uh, Tommy, because like even on the album, there's some like, uh, you know, talk, like studio banter left in, you know, yeah. and it gives it that that sort of, like I said, that unfussed over feel. So it, clearly it's almost, you were saying that's just what these songs kind of lent themselves to, but there's such a vibe to the album as being so fun and laid back, impromptu almost, but it's clearly not. So you had to have a say in that. You wanted to say, let's just scale this way back. It's over in 30 minutes at 10 songs or each one's a little, you know, fun little, fun, fun little ditty. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're all little, little anecdotes. You know, it was, it was, we fussed over some of the stuff and other things we didn't fuss over at all. Mm -hmm. And you know, it only took us so long to make it because we both have other things going on in our lives. And so when we get together and, you know, this record pretty much reflects our vibe, our whole, okay. you know, what we do together. We actually just added a our buddy Chops on bass, uh, upright bass and vocals. He, um, we've been friends with him for years and he actually played the bass on some of this record anyway. And so, you know, we kind of upped the game in a little bit with that. It's been fun. We had a yeah. really good, we had a first, you know, two week run around the release of the record on June 2nd for two weeks. And, um, you know, just kind of having fun with it. And cool. really at, at my age, I'm grateful to be able to just go out and do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it and still be able to, you know, make a living at it. Yeah. You know? I love it. I think it's so strong. I love the title. I was thinking wronger. I thought the next time I get into it with my wife and she tells me I'm wrong and I'm going to say, yeah, but you're wronger, you know, <laughs> Be careful with that. I know. <laughs> Use that sparingly, fella. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be my new response to anyone. Anytime anyone tells me I'm wrong, I'm going to be like, yeah, but you're wronger. Yeah. Uh, but what does that mean? Where'd that come from? That's another chipism. Another chipism. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Well, I love it. And I love your approach. I love the way you approach the album. And I love the way you're approaching presenting the album with these shows, because I think the two go hand in hand. And I don't know much about Chip, but he sounds great. Whatever chemistry he brought to you that inspired the two of you to make this, it's the perfect ingredient. I love it. Cool. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Sure. I want to ask you about a couple of your songs that I really love. Okay. Yeah. Um, One of them is Not a Moment Too Soon. Off the first, the Vulgar Gorilla Head album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that track, and I wondered what the story of that song is. Do you remember making that song? You know, I do. Um, it 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 just had it, it had to do with 
sitting there with someone, seeing things one way and me seeing them another way. And, you know, we could be looking at the same fucking picture and they're completely different interpretations of that. And kind of in a relationship that can be, that can be a, a, a bit of a beast to get around. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, like I, that song kind of summed it up. I mean, we, yeah. you know, you come to, come to terms with it. It came, come to terms with it kind of last minute, if you're lucky enough and, and yeah. before you cause imminent, you know, imminent disaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've mentioned, a couple divorces. Are you currently married? I don't even know. What's your, fam what's your family uh, I, situation? I am, I'm not doing marriage again. I haven't okay. been good at it. Um, uh, barely good at relationships um, uh -huh. for whatever reason. A uh, lot of shit there, but uh, currently in one. I'm just kind of taking it very slow. Okay. Okay. Just curious. Because one of my other favorite songs of yours is Meant to Be. What's the story of that one? More, more bad relationship. <laughs> that seems to inform a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got a, got a, got a lifelong fucking, you know, subscription to that. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I was bad, bad relationships, you know, magazine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're the editor in chief. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Fuck. And all your ex-wives and ex-girlfriends, right? op-ed columns um, I, i've earned their ire put it that yeah, way yeah. <laughs> um okay i was i did not know that you did this until getting ready to talk to you you and bt did the soundtrack to catch and release so here's yeah. the story i saw that movie in the theater and i remember uh it was in one of those cheap dollar theaters i was just in the mood to go to the movie at, at movies that night and i hadn't seen it and i remember getting there late because I think if I had seen the name Tommy Stinson as like music supervisor or whatever, I would have had my mind blown. I love BT. You two are two great tastes that I would never in my life put together. How did this come to be? Why isn't there more of it? You know, BT and I met years and years ago in LA. And I can't even remember why or how. It might have had everything to do with Richard Fortas, the Guns um, N' Roses 
uh, pal of mine who I've known forever. I'm pretty sure it was through Richard Fortas that I met BT. Anyway, he, he'd worked with BT on different things. We were all friends and stuff. Cut to uh, BT was doing a lot of music scoring for movies and that. And I met a woman um, when I went to play on a movie that Paul was working on. Paul was working on... Um, open Season. Open Season. I went and played on that. And I met this woman that um, you know I became friends with. She ended up hiring me to do Catch and Release but we used BT because he'd scored a movie before and I hadn't mm. and um, put us together to score it. And that's how we, we did that. And we scored the movie. It was a lot of fun, really fun work. I wish I could get more of that work happening because it's, it really is a lot of fun. It's right up my alley, creatively speaking. So um, until it became a thing and he and I became kind of pals before we were pals before that, but yeah, I've lost touch with that guy. I should call him one of these days, just say, hey, he kind of, I kind of, we we both grew off into different sure. things. And, you know, I moved to East Coast, uh, you know, in 2008, lost track of him. Yeah, I love him. Um, Howard Jones was on here last year, and he and Howard have been doing some work together, which that collaboration makes sense. But I was shocked to know that you two had worked together Um because I just love both of what both you guys have done, but I never would have guessed, you know? Yeah, you know, we wrote some other things that never made the movie that were pretty cool. I actually, strangely enough, I got called from him to do something really nutty. It was, um, he was, wow, well, that's Stephanie. Huh. Um, he was working, he was working with Tiesto, huh? Steve Perry, him, and they were working on a song for Tiesto's record that Steve Barry was going to sing. And they wanted me to come over and help him write the lyrics. So I go over there and I help him write these lyrics and we work on this song. And then him and Tiesto had a falling out. Sadly. Oh. And um, I never saw the song, never saw the light of day. It was interesting, really cool. I would have never in a million years thought I'd be singing in a room with Steve Perry. Um, but what a fucking great dude. And really voice. I mean, yes. this, guy, this guy has this very boomy projection, yes. you know, fucking operatic voice. And he was just, you know, he'd be just singing along or whatever. You just be going, Holy shit. That's what he sounds like. And you just fill the fucking room, you know? Wow. Um, it was amazing. Amazing. I got chills right now just thinking about that. I can that. tell. Me too. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And sadly, the song never made the light of day. And that's somewhere in BT's vault, I'm sure. Oh, he's got to get that. Just for, like, it's such a, that would never happen. I mean, BT, Tiesto, you and Steve Perry, of all people, on one right. song? That's so weird, you know? Yeah. Random. Yeah. Well, and he became kind of a recluse, you know, just kind of, sort of checked out, retired, didn't want to do anything. He can live off trip or, or journey money forever. Well, and no, no, that's actually not the story. What really oh. happened, what really happened is he was going to, it was before they were going to go out. And I think if I recall, he had to have some kind of a, it was a joint, like maybe it might have been a hip or something like something that. Something wrong with his hip. Yeah, he I had to get some kind of. He had to get some kind of thing before he go out. Some kind of a medical thing done before he went out. And they were like, "No, we're not waiting for you." And they fucking replaced him. And <laughs> and and this was I. This was kind of going down when we were doing that. And I'm just like, how do you replace fucking Steve Perry? I oh mean, their biggest songs are <laughs> fucking Steve Perry. I mean, how do you pull that up? And they did. Fucking went, and it's just like wow, how the balls won, but also just like I fucked up, and I'm sure there's more to the story. But man, I was I was blown away by that. I oh. could not believe, still can't believe that they went out without him. And that's you know. ballsy. I mean, it's clearly worked out, but no one, it's not going to be the same. And uh, yeah, the balls of just thinking, oh, we can, we'll be fine without Steve Perry. I guess they have, I, except unless. It's, you know, Neil and Jonathan Cain arguing about politics and songs and Trump and all that kind of stuff. Oh, God, don't even fucking open that one. <laughs> fucking Lord. It's, Lord. it's annoying. Uh, it's pretty bad. Um, okay, speaking of things that are pretty bad, can I ask you just a couple of Guns N' Roses questions? Sure. Okay. 
So the thing that I'm most interested in. Did you catch that? You said, can I ask you a couple of Guns N' Roses questions? I said, go ahead, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. (laughs) I thought you said, sure. Shoot's even better. Good one. Okay. So here's the deal. What I'm wondering is when you become under the employ of Guns N' Roses, I'm imagining (laughs) you getting a call about every six months from Axel or maybe an Axel representative saying, Tommy, Axel wants you to come into the studio tomorrow to lay down some bass parts and you show up and he's probably not even there and you go in and you, what are we doing? I don't know. All I know is Axel said to put down some bass parts. Okay. So you play some things, you go back and he calls you a year later and Axel wants you to come down and lay down for another song. That's what I'm imagining being employed by Guns N' Roses is not not completely, but it's similar. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we we worked hard on that record as a group, and it. Uh, Let me stop you though. Of, as a group in one room, like writing yeah. and playing face to face with each other. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then, okay. And then there was a lot of time where people would take the bits and go into their own studios and work with them and mess around with them, but. What he doesn't get enough credit for on that record is that he really kind of he really produced that himself, basically, because really? he really oh. the way he his collaborative uh, the way his collaborative brain works is that well I've got all these guys that are in the band that all bring something to the table in his mind, but he wants them all to be invested in each song one way or the other so that they all feel like they're part of it and all want to play the songs equally well and do a thing. Where I think with the old band, it was like, well, you, I want you to play my songs because my song's better. And then you get Slash and you get this and you get that. And, you know, the fighting within. I think it was his way of going, well, on everyone invest equally in each song and blah, blah, blah. And so it made us work, us guys that were doing it and different, you know, formations of that lineup actually uh-huh. made people, you know, we we're all from different backgrounds, musical backgrounds. from. Totally you know six guys from completely different places musically but to write together and to come together and make a record was an undertaking and he worked that out and you know i'm proud of that record i think it was a you know we made a good record and that you know he gets the credit he should get the credit really for producing that record because really you know he it, it took a lot to make it and it wasn't it wasn't because so much because of his because of Axel, whenever stuff, it was had there were a lot of fucking bumps in the road from the record company, the producers, the this and the that that had fuck all to do with the fucking making of it. So interesting, huh? Having to navigate all the horse shit to make that record fucking you know happen was enough, you know. Yeah, you mentioned. Uh, I like how you said it about Axel wanting everyone to feel as if they're staked in the success of this. Album. I want you to feel like you these songs belong to you tell me one of the songs on that album that you feel some sense of ownership of you co-wrote it you came up with a part that you really are proud of yeah there was a time the time was one that uh yeah that was a, there was a collab, pretty good collaborative effort on that one and i had a okay. good i had a good piece of that that came out kind of magically with us all in the room him included that we worked out together that was like i felt pretty cool about that i felt like mm. oh that was cool that worked out here's the song you know, worked yeah. out. i feel like if that album hadn't taken so long to come out and the drama surrounding swirling around that album hadn't been so high intense 
it would have been seen differently because it's a strong album. It has its it has its fans and it has its detractors. Yeah. For an album that is the thing we've been waiting for for 15 years or whatever, that might that's different than the next album by Guns N' Roses. They have they come with different expectations, you know. Well, uh, and here here's the thing. I mean, anytime you make a you have a successful run as an artist. The people that buy your records, they want more of the same. They want, yeah, they want, yeah. you know, they ultimately they want another welcome to the jungle. They want another you can be mine. But as an artist, that is the last thing you want to make is another one of the same thing. You want to keep, you know, pushing. If you're a real artist, you're going to keep pushing yourself in different directions. Axel is one of those guys that pushes himself in every direction. Mm-hmm. And for the people that poo poo that, I say, fuck off, because mm-hmm. I think, um, as an artist, he has every right and should always entertain every every musical feeling and thought. I mean, that's what makes a true artist to begin with. Um, and so, you know, fuck all that. Uh, I, I say, I say, I made a great record for um, you know for where he was and where we were all at together with him at that time. And what's next? I couldn't even imagine. Uh, they're set up to make another record, but. Um, really? They go in and try and make fucking uh, another uh, another Appetite Roses record that sounds yeah. like uh, the first the first big hit. I mean, I don't see that happening. I, I know. I see that, and I see that the want to appease the fans, but ultimately you have to appease yourself. And I can't see, I can't see how they could appease both. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think, totally. I think, there's, I, think be, I think mostly in a way. I think Axel musically i think he is a lot more diverse you know in his songwriting than totally. they are, i think in a way i mean I, 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 I'm, they're all talented of course and they have their things that they do not but i can see axel's he's not a one-trick pony in yeah. any way he was like he likes this he'd like to be like them he likes new stuff he likes old stuff i mean mm-hmm. kind of, that's kind of what i liked about him i mean mm-hmm. um as a as a songwriting partner in a way it's just that he's kind of all over the place and mm-hmm. I, I I embrace that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Did Richard Fornis bring you into Guns N' Roses? Is that how the connection was made? No, I brought him in actually. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Well, well, he was him and I ended up on a session together in LA and met each other at the session. And when he was in town for this particular session, he was also supposed to be trying out for Guns N' Roses. Oh. And and I think what happened was we'd already gotten Bumblefoot at that point. So he didn't get a call to do the audition because we already settled. Axel had already settled on this other guy. So cut to him and I just became friends at that point. Mm-hmm. Cut to might have been like another year down the road before there were auditions for guitar player, and he came and he got the gig. And nice. Um, and uh, you know the rest is history from there. Yeah. But um, you know him and I, him and I became fast friends right at the gate from the session we'd done. Okay, I know him primarily. Wasn't he in? Uh psychedelic furs or was it uh in the furs he's in love spit love love yeah. spit love i was trying to remember the name of the offshoot band yeah that's how i primarily knew him and so similar to you it's like the guy from love spit love is going to join guns and roses that seems out of it but the way you're describing all of this makes so much more sense than it does on paper now because you could tell i mean axel's influences always seem to be more like queen and elton john than like the blues-based rock and roll he clearly has a more diverse palette than we realize bringing in guys like you and bumblefoot foot and richard from different areas that aren't his area you could tell he probably like just like he's a fan of you guys and wanted to work together yeah i mean yeah yeah and you know and he also you know there's a lot of current stuff going on a lot of hip-hop and things like that sure. that he gets into too and so he's always trying to find ways to incorporate the things he's hearing that he likes yeah. into what he's doing now yeah and when you've got a you know, guitar-based rock band to contend with when you have these other feelings and thoughts, it's really hard to get to the, the, the nitty-gritty of it and write totally. a song with those kind of people if they're not feeling that vibe. Yeah, I, get you. I, I see it. Okay, one last thing. Uh, we try to touch on sensitively the business side of things on here. Um, yeah. I'm guessing, I don't know how it would have worked. Would you have... I'm just imagining a guy who's coming from one of the most beloved, but 
most beloved cult or underground sort of band. You're not millionaires. Maybe you are because of the major label signing or whatever, but not really. And then suddenly you're a member of probably the biggest band in the world at that time. Are you on a retainer? Do you, uh, does your lifestyle change incrementally? What is that like that shock to your system? It was a good gig. I mean, yeah. it was a good gig for me when it came up. I was I was in the in the throes of a record deal with my with my band Perfect. That the company was owned by Regency Films, and we were just about to get screwed again by them. And it was just like, okay, hold on. And the Guns N' Roses thing came up when I was going. I just want to play and not have to deal with this bullshit for a while and so <laughs> we took a step right and had to deal with the same bullshit anyway but sure. uh, in a different different, different realm but, um, yeah. yeah good okay speaking of now um uh, and i mean there are books and movies made about the replacement so i don't want to dwell on that too much either i do have a couple of questions number one i saw you guys at the riot fest show in denver and yeah. it was a one of the happiest moments of my life that I got to finally see the replacements, a band you would never think would happen. Um, and then I saw you again come through Denver on your last tour when Paul's wearing the shirts with the, with a letter on them. And uh, everything felt very different on that tour. And it must have been different because it was the last one. What was souring that moment for everybody? I think we might have wore out our welcome. Mm. You know, I think we came in with good intent. And, um, you know, we, try, we, we experimented with the idea of recording a bit and trying this, doing a thing, and it just fizzled out. I think um, there, were, there were, you know, outside forces that were also coming into play that were kind of, you know, mucking up the works. But uh, ultimately, it was meant to be a short, you know, reunion thing not wasn't meant to be a career, um, and you know, I think we might have just maybe done it a little longer than we should have. I think it stressed our relationship a little bit, but we'll get past that too. You know, sure. I was I saw the Pixies a couple of weeks ago in concert, <laughs> and uh, I feel like the replacements could so easily have a Pixies like career now if you wanted it you i mean they and i'm saying all of this and you're probably like that is the last fucking thing we want but maybe that's what you're maybe that's it but those guys put out a core canon of music that is absolutely bulletproof 35 years ago or whatever and it suddenly came back into popularity they can sell out red rocks where i've seen them before they can put out the occasional bit of new music they may not all love each other, but they're going to be millionaires because people now love them and want to come see them. Wherein before they were in little clubs, you guys could so easily do that, but I guess it's just not worth the trouble. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think there's an appetite for it. Okay. Between Paul and I, I think it's, I think um, we just, we we're on two different paths, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's okay. Um, yeah. That's just the way it's meant to be played out, you know? Okay. Okay. Well, it's not like you buy, I mean, you guys both successfully do whatever else you want to do. I mean, your yeah. solo careers are great. He's into painting now, I believe. Right. Yeah. 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 Great. Um, yeah. Okay. We all got our own bits. Sure. And it's just as good. I mean, I, I, I love what you're doing. Okay. I have, uh, we have Patreon supporters and I tell them who I'm talking to and if they want to submit questions, uh, they can. And one of them, Jake rude, as a pretty well-known DJ out of Minneapolis. And he um, he's one of our listeners. And he wanted me to ask you, as a fellow Minneapolitan, I'm probably not saying that. I know. Minneapolitan, yeah. okay. What's his favorite memory he's had within the walls of First Avenue? Seeing Gang of Foreplay. Whoa, really? Yeah, fuck. John King was on here last year. I love them and I've never seen them. It's fucking awesome. Sarah Lee on bass. Fucking I Love a Man in a Uniform tour. Yes. Fucking ripping balls. And I could only get into the show pretending to be a roadie. I had to help move PA gear to get into it. And um, I think I was 17. Uh -huh. um, it was really, really fucking great show. 
fucking just energy and i was just madly in love with sarah lee right there on the mm -hmm. spot like i just couldn't get enough and she was so fucking sexy and mm -hmm. and they just they ripped they were killer it's great wow that is not the answer i thought you would get you would give did you ever see prince or the time or any of those guys i saw prince, I saw prince there before I saw the time there you know and those yeah. were good shows too but really the one that just always stuck out to me is like mainly because it, it came with a story with it as well. Like after the show, I'd help push the PA gear back onto the truck and halfway up the ramp, I'm pushing a fucking base bin and it's heavier than I am. And I'm pushing it up and halfway in the, up the ramp, I'm, I'm in a place where it's going to overtake me. And just as it's about to overtake me, someone comes, grabs me from behind and pushes me up. I about died. I mean, I was going up the back of a fucking uh, semi truck. You know? <laughs> uh, it's pretty scary. Wow. But, uh, I love it. Well, but, you know, it was a great, great, great show. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tommy, I mean, uh, I I just love you. Uh, before we go, we got a couple minutes. Tell, what is one of your favorite rock and roll stories? You've seen it all. You've collaborated with it all. I'm. There are more stories bouncing around in your head than we can even imagine. People you've met, partied with, hung out with smoked weed with whatever it might be what is what is your fit when you sit back there in the in northern new york what are you just like i can't believe this happened to me did you meet a hero did you did you play a show that was extra good what is it well i've had so many of them there's not it's hard, to, it's hard to pinpoint one as a perfect anecdote for you but um it was pretty cool um, sitting next to David Bowie on a couch at the Rock Award show that we did. I think it must have been 1989 or 90. It was the first and only one of two international rock award shows to compete with like the Grammys and all that kind of thing, but for rock and roll. Uh -huh. and, um, they put all the guys in one area and all the women in another area. And we're sharing a dressing room. Like Keith Richards walks in. We're the first ones there because we were just, I don't know why even really, but we were there early and we, you know, walk in and Keith, Keith Richards walks in, drops his backpack and his bottle of whiskey down and walks off to do his thing. And, you know, and I'm sitting there on the couch and Eric Clapton comes in and he's got an ironing board and he's ironing in his shirt. And, and then David, <laughs> Bowie comes, wow. hey, David Bowie walks in and he sits next to me on the couch. He's going, how you doing, mate? I'm like, good and we just sat there and shot the shit and he was really really engaged and really engaged in what i was talking about and asking me about how it's going for us and touring and are we happy you know this all kind of thing and it was really sweet and i just remember getting up from that going holy shit i just sat there and had a fucking you know small talk with yeah. david bowie who seemed like he really cared about what we were talking yeah. about about yeah. you know how's it going for you man you know that kind of thing i was like that was cool yeah amazing he's my number one favorite of all time and sometimes to sort of jump start or trigger memories when i ask people this question i'll say did you ever meet david bowie so yeah. it's it's amazing to me that that's what you thought to say without any <laughs> triggering i love it he's my favorite too and everyone who's ever mentioned him has almost everyone james williamson of the stooges doesn't like bowie that much but everyone else who's been on here who talks about bowie just does it lovingly one last yeah. question do the replacements belong in the rock and roll hall of fame do you care and if you were uh put in would you guys show up because it's a very replacements thing not to show up i i don't know that i care i don't know what it means um it seems kind of like a kind of a watered down kind of i don't know i don't know i i, I it'd be of course i'd be you know of course i'd be uh grateful and of course i'd i'd want to show up i suppose if they did but it's not something i really think about okay just curious because it's start you're the the band is starting to get more uh momentum in that direction and so I wonder if that matters to people. And when you've got someone as mercurial as Paul seems to be, he seems like the type that wouldn't show up or would show up, but be drunk or, or whatever. I mean, just something, it wouldn't just be clean and straightforward. It would be something else. Yeah. No, I mean, he's, he's always had that sort of sub self-sabotage element. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> that's right. That's I, it. I guess. We, I mean, that's kind of what we all we all. That was the replacements. Fucking self sabotage. Really. Yeah. True. True. Yeah. Okay. Last one. I asked you about a Guns N' Roses song that you feel some ownership of. Is there a replacement song that you feel ownership of? Yeah, probably Alex Chilton. Probably. Yeah, that's my favorite. That's my favorite replacement song. That'd be up there. Yeah. What yeah. about within your reach? That's such a unique song for you guys. Drum machine happening in the background. Always, always love that song. Um, I love it too. Did Paul just put it? You know, press a button on a Casio keyboard and write it like that, or what? I, I, I don't even think I was on that one. I think, yeah. uh, I think it's even Paul playing the bass on that one. Even. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just curious. Kind of recorded like a demo, hence yeah. that's kind of the vibe it's got. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Tommy, I love you a lot. Thanks for all the good work you put in the world. And I love the new album. And if I can spread the word, then I'm happy to do it. It deserves it. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. You too. Take care, Tommy. We'll see you, man. Bye-bye. All right. There you have it. Tommy Stinson. I love that. I hope you did too. And look, like I was saying earlier, I understand he doesn't want to spend all his time talking about the replacements or GNR. And I I respect that, and so I, did, I didn't want to make him feel like he had to do that. And maybe in return, he gave me a few minutes on both of those topics, and I'm really grateful for that. So we learned a lot about Tommy as a solo artist and as a guy, and we got some great new information on both those bands that are iconic, and, uh, and I think we, you know, did it right. So anyway, thank you, Tommy, for doing that with me. It means a lot. Of course, we have to close it out with Alex Chilton because he mentioned it, and it's my favorite replacement song, and he felt like he contributed, and so we gotta close it out with that, it's a classic. Now, as I mentioned, these last two weeks have been American indie bands. Next week, we're talking to a legend from Down Under, and uh, you guys ask me a lot if I ever get nervous doing interviews, and I really don't anymore, but I did for this one, and I'll explain why next week, because this person means a lot to me. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for doing this with me. Uh, folks, you can like our Facebook page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, we should have a recap episode coming out this weekend, and um, we hear from a lot of you guys that you like those. Andy was not able to join us, so it's just me and Yan this time, but that's what's coming out this weekend. And once again, Wronger is the new album from Cowboys in the Campfire. It's excellent. Please go check it out. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.